Well, good morning. If you're like me, you've been watching the news and you've been seeing the articles online, maybe in social media, you've been noticing everyone is talking about race. They're talking about Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Can we agree, regardless of skin color or gender or social status, all lives matter? And to every law enforcement officer in this room or listening to this message, Calvary Christian Center has your back. We need you. That's right. Come on. I wish Sheriff Parker was in this room this morning to see all of these people with support. Listen, we love you. We need you. You are doing God's work in our community. And as for me personally, I just want you to know, whether it's praying in the church or out there somewhere on the street, if you need help, I've got your six. I've got you covered, right? How many in here have the intestinal fortitude to say the same thing? We got, we got your back. We are supporting what you are doing. God has ordained a role to authorities and households to protect the innocent when evil won't stop. Can we agree? We are sane people living in a crazy world where we send probes and satellites on multi-million dollar quests to find microscopic evidence of life in the universe, but we fail and refuse to recognize life in the human womb. In this critical hour, we find ourselves in desperate need of clarity and truth because life is beautiful. People are precious. You matter. And what you need to understand is everything that's been happening today has happened before in the Bible. It's true. In the New Testament, we see Israel. The Jews are under Roman rule, rather Roman oppression and military occupation. Rome oppressed the Jews and treated them unfairly. And by unfairly, I mean roads lined with crucifixions. Oppressive taxes, no civil rights like we understand it today. Like in any group of people, there were some good Romans and there were some bad Romans. Now, some of the Jews created an offshoot group called the Zealots, and their main interest was eradicating the problem, which was the Romans. And they would plot and carry out hit jobs to kill Romans. And they marched the streets saying, Jew lives matter. And they believed Messiah would come and conquer the Romans and kill them off so that the Jews could reign on earth with the Messiah in peace and not have enemies. But then Jesus comes, and many Jews start suspecting that Jesus is the Messiah. But then the Romans kill him. Now the zealots are back at square one. But then Jesus is raised to life, and the disciples eagerly ask, now? I mean, now that you are clearly immortal, is it go time against Rome? To which Jesus replies, no, and that's classified information. You have another mission, which is to tell everyone about me and what I've done. So the disciples declare him as the risen Lord and Messiah. But uh, we still got a Roman problem here. So Jesus' disciple Peter is trying to navigate this new world. He's coming from a history and a tradition steeped in Mosaic law. And now that Jesus has come and died and risen again and changed everything, 
what does serving God look like now? Now that the ultimate sacrifice for sin has been given, how much of the Jewish law do we keep? And that's where we arrive at our text today. So please, everyone, would you stand with me as we look at Acts chapter 10? It says this, The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And the same vision was repeated three times, and then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, you may be seated. Okay, so this passage begins talking about a Cornelius. Who is Cornelius? Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's in command of a hundred men, and his unit was archers. So this is basically the Chris Kyle sniper unit, trained in Rome, deployed to the Middle East. But Cornelius has heard about the God of Israel and correctly identifies the truth of their God, as opposed to the pantheon of gods and goddesses of Rome who behave like sex-crazed drama queens in some sort of daytime soap opera. Cornelius knows the truth when he hears it. And so even though he is not a Jew, even though his empire is currently occupying Israel, even though he is an outsider that God might have good reason to reject, he begins seeking after the true God. And it's documented Cornelius led his entire household in commitment to prayer and generosity. Here in Acts chapter 10, it says, One afternoon about three o'clock, Cornelius had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner who lives near the seashore. And as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius calls two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Isn't it interesting that the angel does not share the good news about Jesus with Cornelius. The angel defers to the chain of command established by Jesus where responsibility is placed directly in the hands of the church, human beings who have themselves experienced salvation. Peter is staying in a seaside town called Joppa. And he's undergone a massive transformation in his life, having now been a firsthand eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And now, after the events of Pentecost, 
Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is fearless and bold as he is telling everyone the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. He is a man on fire. Miracles are happening, flowing through Peter's life. And just a few days ago, he literally raises a woman from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love Peter because he is so full of contradictions. He is an imperfect apostle. On one hand, we see him do amazing things like walk on water or give an altar call for 3,000 people to repent and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And on the other hand, we see him deny Jesus or chop the ear off of the temple guard or in this morning's example, wrestle with racist tendencies. You see, the vision was not about Peter's diet. God was not saying, Peter, you need more protein. (laughs) No. God was challenging Peter's ideas about where real righteousness comes from and his ideas about entire groups of people. Now, remember when I said earlier, everything that you see happening today has happened before? Well, this is true for Peter, too. It's no coincidence that Peter is in Joppa when he receives this revelation from God. Because nearly 800 years earlier, God spoke to another one of his guys named Jonah to do what? Go and preach to a city of pagan, heathen, non-Jewish, Gentile, brutal, bloodthirsty heathens and tell them to repent so that I don't have to judge them. But Jonah doesn't agree with God that all lives matter. He rebels, and he goes where? Joppa. Jonah pays his way on board a ship to Tarshish. And if you want to know the rest of the story and how Jonah learns that Ninevite lives matter too, you can read it on your own time. What we learn in Joppa is God is talking to Romans too. God isn't just talking to you. He's talking to the outsiders. God is talking to the sinners. God is talking to people who are not like you. God is talking to people that you don't like. And he's telling them, I love you. It doesn't matter to me how far you've gone. It doesn't matter to me what you've done. There's a place for you in my heart. Come to me. And God is also talking to us, his own. And he's saying to us, stop blaming them. And just go get them and bring them home to me. So Peter travels to Caesarea, to the house of Cornelius, where he had gathered all of his relatives and close friends. And Peter tells them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Acts chapter 10 says, before Peter even got to wrap up his sermon, the Holy Spirit came in power and everyone in the room was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues. It was all messed up. They hadn't even been baptized in water yet. So instead of an altar call, Peter wraps it all up with baptism. And there, Peter has a revelation. I want to quote to you what Peter says. He says, I see very clearly, that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Here is a prominent Christian figure who struggled with racism very publicly because it's recorded for all time. How many times have you thought, 
I wish I lived in the times of Jesus. Hmm. Uh, right, because you want all your junk exposed and recorded and talked about every Sunday for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. Look, we are all vulnerable to the same temptations and weaknesses. And Peter gives us hope because Jesus helps him overcome those things. And Jesus will help us too. Do you ever notice that we seem to congregate with people who are most similar to ourselves? What many people don't realize is that racial structure is not based in reality. Anthropologists have proven there's no biological reality to the idea of races. There is one race, the human race. Now, when uh, we received the census forms in the mail, I just filled out our names, and I included three quotes and a question. Quote number one from Robert Sussman. He says, all humans around the world are biologically similar despite superficial differences. In fact, we apparently are 99.9% genetically identical. Most of the differences between us are due to unique individual traits, like being male or female, Most biological anthropologists would agree, human variation not sufficient enough to warrant defining separate biological races. Quote number two from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And quote number three from the book of Acts chapter 17, from one blood, God made the whole world of humanity to be dwelling dwelling on the whole surface of the earth. And he marked out the times and his decrees and set the coasts and dwelling places of humanity to whom it may concern at the Census Bureau. If science and philosophy and religion all agree that race isn't meaningful, why is it so important to you? And no one ever got back to me on that question, so whatever. (laughs) Where does the road of racism take us? Where is it leading people? I'll give you two examples. Example number one, Margaret Sanger. Maybe you're familiar with this name. Margaret Sanger was an American. She founded what is now known as Planned Parenthood. Hear this quote from Margaret Sanger. Here's what she says. We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. The horrible destruction of more than 65 million American babies can be traced back to the racism of Margaret Sanger. Second example, the Jewish Holocaust. Has anyone here ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C.? Anyone? Okay, just a few of you. I will never forget what I saw there. Among them, a pictorial chart made by Nazi scientists who graphed and categorized every race of people with attention to minute details of measurements and bone structure and skin tone, and they mapped out humanity so that they could show who was to be considered superior and who was to be considered inferior and who was to be exterminated off the planet. And we know that this racism led to the murder of six million Jews. And listen to me. We turn into Hitler's and Margaret Sanger's in our hearts when we group a bunch of people together and pronounce judgment. 
1 John chapter 3, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And we know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. When God first made mankind, He didn't make different races. God didn't make an Asian Adam and Eve and a white Adam and Eve and a black Adam and Eve. No, it was just Adam and Eve. But humanity's parents, the best of us, chose to disobey and rebel and sever their relationship with God. And as a result, we were ejected from the garden and separated from God and eventually separated from each other. Does anyone here who kind of maybe you grew up in church and you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Humanity had a deeply spiritual problem, but they began seeking a physical solution. And so they began to build a tower that was designed to reach into heaven. And here's what God says about humanity. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. (laughs) Almighty God says, when people are unified, think about this, God acknowledging that nothing is impossible for unified people. There is an undeniable power in unity among people. But in this fallen state, in setting rebellious goals, God knew humanity's unity was fueling evil pursuits. So God himself divides us overnight. It was the Rosetta Stone in reverse. God invents a series of languages, downloads them into the brains of humanity, reboots, and when everyone wakes up the next day, boom, total confusion. And besides God's creative genius on this, the secondary genius about God is that he knows in our fallen state, mankind will naturally seek to unify with what is familiar and distance himself from what seems foreign. So people clung to each other in the city that they understood, and the tower was abandoned, and mankind divided himself into language groups and splintered off in different directions. Sound familiar? It's here that we have the seeds for what we call cultures and races. Race isn't biological. It only exists metaphysically as a man-made social structure. Man had separated from God, and now man was separating from each other. Fast forward to the book of Acts, and here we see the parallel supernatural sign that God was preparing mankind for a reunification Jesus has ascended into heaven. The disciples are praying in the upper room, waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, what happens? Everyone receives a gift of languages. Languages was the sign thousands of years prior that God was disrupting the unity of mankind because of his rebellious condition and ambition. But now Jesus had come and accomplished the mission of removing the sin problem. Now the Holy Spirit could come and reunify what had been divided. And again, the sign, languages. 
supernaturally given languages. And the day that this happened, thousands of Jews and converts from other countries had come to Jerusalem to celebrate a holy celebration. They heard those who were baptized in the Holy Spirit praising God in their native languages. And Peter preaches boldly, and boom, 3,000 people repent and acknowledge, Jesus is Lord. From day one, God gave the church the solution to the problem of racism in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. God was signaling he was ready to reunify redeemed humanity and reactivate in us the latent power of unity that he had set out of our reach. Hear the Apostle James in chapter 2. My dear brothers and sisters, How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, well, you could stand over there or sit on the floor. Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom promised? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you to court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good When you obey the royal law as found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. The main issue with any kind of prejudice or discrimination is that we are looking at people the way the world looks at people and not how Jesus looks at them. We, the church, must reject any designation of people which doesn't come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen this morning in this church? Love is the highest law in the kingdom of heaven. And not just loving people who look like us or talk like us or worship like us. Hear the words of our Lord in John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went to the cross because to God all lives matter. Everyone, your life matters. Hillary Clinton's life matters to Jesus. Donald Trump matters to Jesus. The people who belong to ISIS matter to Jesus. The people who hurt you, who rejected you, who said nasty things about you, they matter to Jesus, and he loves them too. But you see, we we like to group people together, don't we? And pull out that big, broad brush and say, well, those people, they are the problem. You know, there there are some people, they only have a relationship because they share a common enemy. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
I've seen this. People, they get together in little clusters and they form friendships because they're complaining about the same stuff. And pretty soon, they're taking vacations together, watching each other's kids. They have nothing in common except what they agree is the problem, right? And this is how movements get started. People who would never darken each other's doors are now buddies because they agree the problem is what? Police brutality. They agree the problem is income disparity. They agree the problem is guns. The problem is education. The problem is the Democrats. The problem is the Republicans. There's power in agreement right? They agree. They come together. Jesus points this out in Matthew 18. Again, I say to you, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father in heaven. That's power. We could sit in this room. We can agree. This is the problem. We touch it in agreement, and Almighty God responds. It shall be done for them of my Father. That's power, and we need to agree, church. At the Tower of Babel, they had power. They agreed what the problem was, and they agreed what the solution was. The issue was they were seeking a physical solution to a supernatural problem. And we pray like that too, don't we? We pray for a physical, temporary solution to a spiritual problem. How many of you know it's not that God doesn't answer us? The problem is we aren't asking the right questions. In therapy, couples can spend years trying to identify their problem because they're spending time assigning issues and and to things that they're not responsible for, right? It's his sloppiness. It's her shopping addiction. It's the mother-in-law. She's too lenient with the kids. He's too tough on the kids. Round and around and around and around and around. But when two people can come together and agree, this is the problem. Solution comes really quickly, doesn't it? Once the root of the problem is discovered, the fruit of the problem can be dealt with. How many stories have you heard, or maybe you experienced this yourself, where someone goes into the doctor for a problem, they do a whole bunch of tests, and they discover, well, this isn't actually the problem. You came in for a pain, but you got blockage in your heart. Or you came in because you were feeling really weak, but we got to tell you, we've discovered cancer. The fruit is the manifestation of what's in the root. And the -the over-the-counter stuff you're going to get at Walgreens is only going to deal with symptoms. You got a runny nose? Yeah, it'll dry up your runny nose, but it'll give you six other symptoms that you didn't have, and you still got the virus. But so often we are praying for Dr. God to heal our symptoms. How many times have we gone to him and said, with the symptoms and said, Father, what's really wrong here? What's the real problem? We spend so much time praying for physical things. Give me a better job. Talk sense into my kids. Provide for this bill. We're praying for the wrong problems. And this happens all the time in the Bible. For 400 years, Israel prays for freedom from slavery in Egypt, and God answered them. It was His will that Israel be free, and He sends Moses. But when He solved their physical problem and took them out of Egypt and gave them wealth and healed them of all their diseases, it only uncovered the fact that none of those deficiencies was the real problem. The real problem was They were still slaves up here. 
They were slaves to their physical, human, selfish desires, slaves to their emotions, slaves to their stomachs, slaves to their comforts. Can I get an amen or an ouch or something this morning? You know what I'm talking about? They were not truly free. When you identify that a physical, temporal problem is the issue, then the solution has to come from a temporal, physical place. But when you identify that the issue is a supernatural one, then the solution is a supernatural one. Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If a house divided cannot stand, then the converse of that must be true also. A house united cannot fall. And that is why Jesus prayed that we would be as one, as He and the Father are one, so that we would not fall, so that we would not cave to the pressures of a divided world, that we would not conform out of fear. We stand together because we agree what the problem is and who the solution is. Now, when Peter was on the rooftop during that vision, he identified the problem is these Gentiles, you know, this race of people who partake in the things that God has called unclean. But Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words coming out of your mouth. The words we choose, the choices we make, these are the fruits of what our roots are in. But we keep focusing on that fruit. Jesus was always more concerned with the spiritual, the supernatural, the unseen. Why? Because that is what affects what is seen. You see, the root grows in the dark places. No one admires roots. No one brings people into their garden to show them the roots of the things that they planted there. No, that that's doesn't happen. Roots grow down in the dirt. They're always present, but when they are deep, and when they are fed, and when they are watered, fruit will grow. The fruit will manifest what's in the root. Jesus said, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Nothing is secret that will not be known and come to light. We all get upset about the state of the world today. We say, how did this happen? All these wars and racism and hate and mass murders, this stuff was in the root. It was in the dark. It was growing and thriving. And now we're dealing with the fruit. And we demand a gardener president who will pick off the nasty fruit and take care of the problem. But there is only one master gardener who can deal with the root. And Jesus turns to us and he asks, are you really ready to be rid of the fruit of racism? And many say, yes, Lord. And then they try to get Jesus to come and and endorse their fruit-picking adventure. But Jesus hands you a shovel. Jesus wants you to see racism isn't the real problem. Hate is. Hate for others is a deeper root that must be plucked out so that the whole tree itself dies and there can be no more fruit. Some politicians will say, blame the cops. That's easy. Others will say, blame certain races as a group for their failures. The globalists and the tyrants say, blame guns. 
and steal liberty from the people. The communists say, well, we could solve inequalities by having the government take everybody's income and redistribute it in the name of fairness. But Jesus says, if we want to rid ourselves of the symptoms, we must kill the virus at the root. So he says that we have to do the hard thing. Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us and lie about us. Jesus says we must forgive and love others in the way that he loves us. At the risk of sounding like a Bob Marley song this morning, one love, it's the answer. Love never fails, but it is expensive. Love comes at the cost of our pride and our self-justifications. And love puts on a towel. It gets down on its knees, washes the feet of those who disappoint us. Love forgives and prays for those who crucify and who inflict pain on us. And love willingly takes all of the blame and none of the credit. And when we begin to comprehend the kind of love that God has for us, how can we hold on to hate? We can't. Our grip on hate loosens and we pray, but they were wrong. God says, I know. Forgive them. But Governor Brown is ruining California. I know. Pray for him. Stand for what's right. Jihadists are murdering and slaughtering and enslaving and torturing. I know. And it breaks my heart. But if they would come to me, I would set them free from the religion of death. Who will tell them of me? Who will show Muslims the power of my love? How long before we're ready to drop the hate and love as Christ commanded us? Look, love is not about ignoring reality, and it's not about approval or condoning what is wrong. Love is about solving our deepest problems at the root. Love is about seeing people the way God sees them. And Jesus wants to do with us what He's always done, to come in and mess up all of our rules and point out that our way of doing things is lost somewhere between irrelevant and wrong, and that His way and His perspective and His love and His righteousness are the only things that matter. Hear the word of the Lord in Colossians chapter 3. Here, there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. In Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus drives into our world with his big, big bulldozer, and he tears down all those walls that we spent so much time and energy putting up to hide behind and protect ourselves from each other, and to throw stuff at each other from behind. And he ruins all of our carefully laid out assignments, and he says, none of that stuff mattered to me. Here's what really matters. 
love others in the way that I have loved you, by serving and giving away your life. Stop looking at the fruit and calling it the problem. Stop looking at any race of people as the problem. Stop looking at police as the problem. Trust me, they are not the problem. Thank God for our police. Thank God for our law enforcement. We need them. Because inevitably, there's going to be somebody who refuses love, and they need to be arrested by justice. You know what I'm talking about? Stop calling the Democrats the problem. The Republicans, not the problem. Hate is the problem. Evil is the problem. And Jesus showing his love through us is the solution. We cannot allow the world to divide us into groups and separate us and cause us to fear and hate each other. The Apostle John had a vision of heaven. And he writes this, after after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. This is how God sees his church, multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, different, but united as one. And when you get to the end of the Bible and we reach the end of the world as we know it, we see the only time God separates people into groups and pronounces a judgment. Hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence And he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. So, who does the separating? Jesus is the only one with the authority to divide people. And this is the only division that matters to God. It's not your race. It's not your ancestry. It's not the color of your skin. It's not your education. It's not your wealth. It comes down to this. Do you belong to Jesus? He goes on. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison. You came and visited me. And the righteous will say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothes? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, cursed ones, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and demons. I was hungry. You didn't feed me. 
I was thirsty. You didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in your home. I was naked. You didn't give me clothes. I was sick and in prison. You didn't care. You didn't visit me. And they'll reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or naked or a stranger or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help, the least of my brothers and sisters, you refuse to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. I'm struck by the fact that everyone on both sides of the division are surprised. The ones who were rejected by Christ are shocked. They thought they were in. They thought they were going to be accepted into the glories of heaven, but they were seeking a solution and not the love of a Savior. And the ones who enter the kingdom are surprised by the accomplishments that Jesus attributes to them. They weren't keeping lists, but Jesus was. By simply loving Jesus and loving and serving others and reaching out to the needy, the outsider, the other, the unlovely, the rejected, they discover that they've been rewarded and accepted and received by Jesus. So the question is, which group do you want to be in when Jesus separates us? Let's stand and pray this morning. Everyone on your feet.